Patricia. Uh, hello there from California. And I'm calling from sunny Florida, so we're doing a bi-coastal podcast today. How is Wonderful. it? How is it in California today? It's uh, it's quite lovely. It's it's coolish on the coast here. It's about sixty five degrees, and I'm looking out at the ocean. It's kind of a slightly overcast day. We we sometimes get a lot of fog on the coast when it's hot inland, so uh, it's quite quite agreeable. Well, it's my favorite part of California where you live. It's one of my favorite parts of the whole world where you live. So I'm a little jealous, but you deserve it. Uh, You've worked hard. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> So I have your wonderful book in my hand, Improv Wisdom. And my first question is, I've been meditating on the jacket cover, but I quite mm -hmm. don't understand what it means. So maybe you could explain what this image means. It's Great. A, There's a, a, fish, a, fish, yeah, it's a fish jumping out of a gold, uh, goldfish bowl or, or jumping into it, not entirely clear. Um, and the, the answer to your question is, I have no idea. <laughs> the um, the the cover image was chosen after some very long deliberation by Random House uh, by the publishers. Uh, they decided that that was somehow uh, uh, a catching uh, an eye catching image. But the thing that I guess pleases me about it is it it doesn't fall into the problematic type cover images that you sometimes see when, when you're trying to advertise improv. You often see a kind of group of people with somebody's got a banana in their ear and somebody else has <laughs> is, is got a huge smile and their eyes are rolled up and, and they just look like they're having a wacky, funny time. And so the, the public mind seems to equate the word improv with comedy. That's the first thing. I've, I've asked audiences of a thousand people, um, how many of you, when you hear the word improv, think of comedy first? And 85% have got their hands in the air. So um, it's, it, to me, while there's no question that improv and comedy have a connection, and they have a connection in theater and uh, worldwide, uh, the word improv and the the techniques and the ideas that it spawns is so much greater than comedy. And, uh, and in fact, I uh, basically I told my editors and Random House, whatever you do, please don't put uh, a couple of people with their eyes crossed and a banana in their ear. <laughs> so the, uh, the, the, the fish jumping in or out of the bowl probably represents something like when you're, when you're improvising, you're not quite sure whether you're getting into something or out of something or, or just what. So it's, I, I have come to um, be quite happy with the little fish. <laughs> but uh, what did it say to you in your meditation? Anything? It said, I thought it was on a rock, and there was like a scorpion type of creature pulling it out of the goldfish bowl. So huh. that's what I saw. <laughs> wow, a scorpion. Let me go take a look at that again. Wow. Or some kind of bat, maybe. I don't know. But, you know, I'm a therapist. I, I do raw charts, and I read everything. Of course, and everything. yeah. <laughs> so, and your book has been translated a few times, hasn't it? Yes, nine. Uh, it's in nine languages, I'm happy to say. Smart. Traveling around the world and uh, uh, getting people in trouble, I guess, uh, with the uh, with the ideas of improv. I'm really pleased that it that it's had such a wide world distribution. Um, there are two Chinese editions: one from mainland China in simple uh, 
simple Chinese characters and and a, a translation from Taiwan that is in the complex Chinese characters. So anyone who reads any kind of Chinese um, can uh, can also take a look at it. Uh, happy that it's in Asia. It's in Japan and uh, Korea as well um, as the Asian then. Um, the most recent is a Russian translation. I'm sure that uh, Putin's people need to learn how to improvise. So. <laughs> um, very happy about that. And there's an e-book, and uh, I did the audio book for it. So it's kind of available in, in a lot of different ways and easy to get. Yeah, I, had, I got the audio version first, which is lovely, but I love having a book in my hand. And Me I, too. I like to underline and sometimes make notes because it's my book and I can do that. So, Great. Uh, yeah. So, well, I'm honored that you that you liked it enough to, to get the hard copy. These days, with uh, uh, we all have too many objects and things in our life, so I'm, I'm pleased when the book uh, ends up um, in someone's house. I, I remember um, one of the negotiations with the publisher was that it had to be in hardcover. I wouldn't accept a contract that just had it come out in paperback. And my thought was this, even if it just came out with one printing and they printed 200 copies, if they were hard copies, the likelihood of them uh, ending up in garage sales and, and staying alive uh, was greater. <laughs> so uh, I, I I like having a hard copy book in my hand. So. so that's great. So I understand that your intro to improv was through the martial arts? Yes, that's true. That's kind of an interesting, slightly interesting story. My Tai Chi teacher, Al Huang, um, was fond of having other instructors join him to do Tai Chi and various things, Tai Chi and cello making. And he had Tai Chi and improv uh, a couple of times. And the uh, the teacher was uh, Keith Johnstone uh, from uh, from Canada. And so uh, I was introduced to improv a couple of times when Keith came to show up with Al Huang to do some classes and games and exercises that accompanied our Tai Chi lessons. And uh, it just hit at the right time. I was teaching at Stanford and I needed I needed to find a way to help bright Stanford students who were very much into their uh, uh, linear brains and mm -hmm. could answer any question that you asked them and could um, were, were marvelous engineers, but they were lacking somehow, many of them were lacking the uh, capacity to sort of pay attention to their own responses, their own thoughts and feelings and ideas, so um, the imagination. So improv dropped in my lap as a drama teacher to help me help Stanford students. And then it just kept uh, growing and developing um, in my life as a teacher. People kept coming to me and asking me to do classes and workshops for their group. Which, and, and the groups were not actors or theater people necessarily. They were um, business or Zen meditation groups, uh, um, teachers in many cases, so um, I began to discover that improv was a, a paradigm, a way of doing something that could serve a whole lot of different purposes. Um, you, you probably know that it's, it's now being used to train Alzheimer's caregivers and uh, first responders in emergency crises and all, all, all manner of things. So um, that's, uh, it, it's exciting 
for me to watch to see see how improv has become this uh, a force for good, I think, in the world. Absolutely. And I think the Applied, Improvis Applied Improvisation Network, to which you belong and speak, mm -hmm. um, they have a lot of members. They do. <laughs> it's growing worldwide, and it's quite an impressive. They're, they're about to have a, um, a conference in Southern California in a couple of weeks from now. And uh, they, it, it's marvelous to network with a whole bunch of other yes-sayers in the world that um, conferences are so positive and uh, so much fun, too, because another aspect of improv is, is it's a model, a paradigm for doing things that's also um, often a lot of fun. There's laughter involved as you try things and make stuff up, and you're more interested in how you're doing something than in a particular outcome, at least in my classes you are, so. I'm with you on that. So when people, when you ask the question, you think improv is what, and they say comedy, how do you define improv? Well, I would say it's, it's, a, it's a modus operandi. It's a way of doing things. It's a, a Tao. A it's, a, it's a mindset, really, uh, so that the, the improviser's mindset looks at anything with, with a, a different kind of, uh, from a different vantage point, than, say, from the scientific perspective. Um, and there, to me, there are um, not so much rules as there, there are guidelines about how this mindset uh, comes into play. It's very much focused on being fully present right where you are in the room that you are with the people that you are, and right now with this uh, with you at the other end of the line, Margot, my, my phone conversation partner, you're my world right now. And so um, being in the present moment, today it's, it's very fashionable to study and practice mindfulness. And uh, I think you, you had a conversation with one of my former students, Ted Desmaisons, who's um, been really advancing the connection between mindfulness and improv uh, ways of doing things. Uh, so you start with that. The um, instead of being comedy or just trying to find funny things to say or do, the improviser is trying to become awake and really notice what's going on. And once you're awake to what's going on, the the next rule that's helpful or maxim or guide is to accept what's going on rather than argue with it or fight it or somehow uh, try to combat it or deny it or go somewhere else. You become uh, accepting of the current reality, and you work with that. The whole idea of not only saying yes, or it's not, it's not just being agreeable, but it's uh, being aware and being open to what's going on, and then building upon it, the notion of yes and, advancing the reality that you're in, and adding to it. Um, so eh, improvisers, I'm fine to fond of saying are, are more like ready, fire, aim. They, uh, <laughs> they act before they've really thought through what they're doing. Um, they act in a kind of um, natural, responsive way and then look back and see what they've done and make sense out of it. Well, talking about yes and, the one of the, usually the first concept a lot of people look at or learn when they take their first improv class there's a wonderful story, I don't know if you know it, about when John Lennon walked into an art gallery one day 
and there was a big mm. ladder, and, the, and he, he had, there was something on the ceiling, and he climbed up the ladder, and uh, it said the word yes. And he had said later, if it had said no, he would have walked right out, but that was how he met Yoko Ono. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> so, oh, that's, that's a great story. Isn't it? So your thoughts yeah. on, on yes and acceptance, because that's so much needed in the world at large, and it's an improv tool, yes, and building on it. So I think it's not, the, the word yes takes us, uh, reminds us that the, the thing that we do when we encounter something is to, uh, the word yes means to accept. Um, some t- it, I think it's, um, it's more, I don't know, philosophically, when you encounter something, you really let it in. You give it a chance to be whatever it is and then build on that. It's, you're right that it's the thing that's missing entirely in our government, where you know, the polarization that's going on, doesn't, it doesn't matter what the content is. You've just got um, no, 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 and no but. That, that there's, the improviser has to uh, first perceive what's going on, that's pay attention, notice, see what it is, and not just be in their head thinking. They have to be observing and noticing. So awareness is key. And then once you are aware of what's going on, you let it in, you accept it, and um, say, hmm, this is what I'm working with. And build upon that whatever it is. So you find what's right about, for you, what's right about what's going on and, um, and build on it. Uh, uh, so often somebody will say, well, of course you can't say yes to everything. And I said, of course you're right. But, but here's an example. Um, say there's a, a mother and her daughter comes up and she's cooking dinner and the daughter grabs on her jeans and says, Mommy, 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 can I have a pony? I really want a pony. And, and of course the answer is no, you can't have a pony. That's ridiculous. We don't have any place to put it or something. But an improv mom, Mommy, Mommy, can I have a pony? Might say, a pony? Wow, I didn't know you were interested in ponies. Hey, we could, I think there's some ponies in the zoo. Would you like to go see one? Or, hey, I bet there's some books in the library about ponies. So they would take the pony idea that has just been introduced, and instead of focusing on it, can I have one, um, explore that. And um, can you imagine the, the child that says, Mommy, Mommy, can I have a pony, whose mother then says, let's go to um, look at the pony ranch and go pony riding. What a cool idea. Mm-hmm. But there are ways to take whatever is there and look for the part of it that is the kernel of good. Uh, look for the nugget in your life that you can uh, build upon um, and not just focus on the part that's obviously uh, problematic or that won't work. Um, but in an improv scene, if we were doing the mommy, mommy, can I have a pony um, uh, on stage as a little uh, as a little drama, you mommy might absolutely say yes to it, or she might say no in the context of the story, uh, because they're looking to find some problem that then will re- be resolved later. But the general principle of yes and means look for what's there that you can build on and make sense out of, depending upon the purpose, uh, because on stage you're often telling a story and not just being not just being an agreeable mom. 
That's right. But also, I was that makes about, sense. Yeah. So I also think about the physical aspect of yes anding or accepting is really focusing in and being so aware of our partner. What's on right. their face? What's their body language? Because mm -hmm. we can play so much off of that as well. And that translates into life, like doing improv with couples as a therapist. You know, having mm -hmm. people become really aware of what their body might be saying. Um, are you recognizing mm -hmm. that you're holding your fist so tight is going to squeeze a nut? Uh, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think that, yeah, go ahead. No, just that uh, I'm, I'm completely in agreement with what you're saying, that it, it's not necessarily just the words, but it's often um, you, you pick up that the partner has a, uh, a puzzled look on their face, uh, even though they're saying something, and, and you're able to notice that there's something there's something unresolved, there's some problem. Um, we do this, I think, in good relationships. We notice not only the words, but the body language of our spouses and partners and friends. And we'll check in, is something bothering you today? And it sometimes is. So um, everything is an offer. That's another wonderful improv idea that um, not only the words that we say, mommy, mommy, can I have a pony, but the uh, particular kind of facial expression and body language that accompanies that. Um, it may even be, I can, I can envision a, a child saying that who really is not meaning that, but um, wants her mommy to pick her up and hug her mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and is looking for attention rather than a pony. And that's the, the that's the call that then, so we're, we all need to learn how to pay more attention to each other because most of us are uh, paying attention to ourselves, mm -hmm. uh, to our own needs and thoughts and desires and problems and whatnot. We got a lot on our plate. And then the next thing these days I'm, I'm aware is uh, we're paying attention to our devices, to our smartphones and our iPads <laughs> and our computers um, and all the little uh, gizmos that are going beep, beep and putting little red uh, numbers to attract our attention. We're, we're in a pretty interesting time where um, the world is looking for ways to get my attention and can usually do that if I own any electronic devices. That's uh, so true. And it has the benefit of connecting us today. That's the beauty right. of it. But so many, so many activities that go on online are meeting people and never really getting to know them or thinking you have a friend and then finding out, I don't know, he's an axe murderer, yeah. I hate to be gross, but you never know who people are. Right, no, it's true. And it's not just the connection, but we're um, uh, increasingly, young people are afraid of, um, of interaction. They, they prefer texting to, uh, to even talking on the phone because right. they have yeah. kind of control over that. And that, that to me is a very scary development. Um, um, each of these tools can can connect us, but it can also uh, create uh, a new forum that uh, keeps us from being able to look into each other's eyes and um, or pat each other on the back. That's why I think improv classes are so important and will be eternally needed. That even a good book like I hope a good book like Improv Wisdom is not the is not going to do it. You got to get in the room with some other people. And usually with a leader who um, has some experience with this work and say, okay, now turn to a partner and the two of you are going to make up a story word at a time and you don't know what you're doing. So all of a sudden you're in 
with another human and you actually have to listen to their words and their expressions and you make up something and it's really kind of silly and nonsense and uh, you get to laugh together so that there's a way that the improv classroom is um, now is becoming the social hall, the, the church basement, the, uh, uh, the club room that we all need to be able to develop our social skills. And to develop a sense of intimacy, of connectedness, we call the, there's a group mind we talk about in improv. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. You're perfectly right about that. So another concept you speak of is be average. And I love mm -hmm. that because <laughs> I think when performing, there's a feeling like I need to be bigger than or something like that. And yep. The, the B average, can you speak on that a little bit, Patricia? Absolutely. To me, it's one of the, I, I learned that from Keith Johnstone. He, he used that phrase, and it was revolutionary. So I can't, I can't um, uh, claim credit for it except to pass it on and say Johnstone was a genius about that. And he, he points out when he teaches that, uh, that we're all um, doing just as you say. We're trying, trying to be special and interesting and uh, entertaining and funny. We want people to like us so much, and we don't want to waste anyone's time. And so we're stretching for that uh, fried mermaid or the, uh, the outside-the-box kind of notion, thinking that's going to, um, that, that's a good place to go when you're trying to entertain something um, unusual. When the truth is, what we're all longing to see, I think, is human beings being human. Mm -hmm. And that if we can allow our mind, instead of trying to search for interesting things to say or do, to um, kind of take a breath and just respond in an ordinary, natural, human way, the, the net result is going to be so much better than all of that striving after funniness. Um, we just know it. It's, the, uh, it. it's humans being human that are themselves a delight to watch. Right. There's nothing funnier than the unintended humor of reality, I think. Exactly. And exactly. And I think it's, it's also good advice when, you're, um, when you've got something important, an, an audition, or I've got to make a a work of art or, or write something that's really good to demonstrate my abilities. If you take the pressure off yourself, it's kind of like a mental trick to say, look, I can't write a great paragraph, but I can write a paragraph. I can just, I can just, just do it, all right? Just be average. And I, that, gets, that cuts through this, um, the tension that happens when you're really trying to do your best. You know, we all know examples of somebody who, uh, because they're trying so hard to do their best, just they blow it because there's too much tension they can't use their ordinary um their ordinary mind their ordinary physiological response to the situation and so uh, the average is a kind of trick um but it's also it, it's it's true because our our average self is good enough a, a good friend of mine gary schwartz he uh trained with viola spolin yeah and he just wrote a book called the king of average it's Children and oh, Adults. It's a beautiful book, The King of Average. I'll have to plug How it. How wonderful. I'll look that up. It's, that sounds marvelous. It is really great. And uh, you mentioned uh, a while back, you used the word take a breath. And uh -huh. when I teach, I often say to people, breathe, take a breath, yep. 
because we do become so breathless sometimes, and that can cause anxiety as well. Absolutely, yeah. It's staying in your ordinary body, body-mind, and breathing can help, especially when you find that there's tension in your shoulders and your voice is getting louder and things are getting faster and it's all out of control and that kind of wildness. <gasps> Take a breath and just uh, return to the world that you're in. You're okay just as you are. Um, yeah, listening gets impeded when you're in that hyper state of uh, trying to be interesting. You can't really hear anything. Well, listening is another important tool because so often, well, there's the voices in our mind and then there's the, vo the sounds around us. And mm -hmm. to really listen to another person is another gift from improv, I believe. Absolutely, yeah. There are, um, I don't know how you and your groups train, but there, there's a group in San Francisco Bay Area called a True Fiction Magazine um, that performs sometimes doing long form. And one of their warm-up exercises is for one, they stand in pairs, and one improviser tells a story um, that goes on for five minutes, uh, and a story that has a lot of details. And so the listener is listening so that at the end of the five minutes when the, um, when the player stops talking, they are to repeat verbatim the entire story with all the details. So they're listening not only for the gist of it all or the general content of the storyline, but they're listening for the, the, the six names that are mentioned and the, uh, uh, all of the other details. And, uh, of course, nobody does this perfectly. But the idea is when you're, when you're really listening on stage, every fact, every name, every noun uh, may be of importance, and you really need to pay attention to the the details. So um, I sometimes do a um, a, a smaller uh, a smaller edition of this to have someone listen for maybe two minutes and try to repeat back exactly what was said. And students always find it's it's a huge challenge and never do it perfectly. But they realize in trying to do it how often we're not we're not listening for detail at all. We're um, we're more more or less kind of trying to get the gist of it if, if we're listening at all. So um, uh, there are different kinds of listening. You can't do that kind of detail listening all the time or you'd go nuts. But uh, it's good practice to try to um, let go of your own story and drama and just be drinking in all of the words uh, that the other player is uh, giving you. I, think I sometimes make myself do this um, at home. I have a wonderful husband, and he loves to talk about genealogy. And I'm not particularly interested in that subject. So um, I, I have the uh, ordinary wifely response. Uh, he talks, and I, mm -hmm, I pretend to listen, and, uh, but I'm not hearing anything at all. <laughs> so, I, and I'm not proud of that, by the way. But I will and that's very, um, give myself. And that's a very real thing. I do the same thing with my husband. So. <laughs> yep. I, and sometimes uh, in, in trying to uh, improve my skills at being a wife, I, it says it doesn't matter that you're interested in this or not. Do the listening exercise. So I'll shift my attention and try to focus really on what he's saying. And, and, and an interesting thing about that is that when you, when you do, when you actually say, it doesn't matter that I'm not interested, but I'm going to honor this exchange now by f really listening, giving him the benefit of all of my attention, 
I start to become more interested. Um, it's quite uh, it, it's quite amazing that attention can can uh, you can gain connection that way, even if you don't start with it. It's it's fun, but. It's a lovely that makes exercise. sense. Yeah, I, I do a two-minute exercise called playful playful experiences before the age of twelve, where it's a two-minute exercise, but one person shares their experiences and the other person can only listen, and uh-huh. uh, because the temptation is if somebody says I used to like to play horseshoes, the other person might want to say Oh, I played horseshoes too. So to really right. get that, fo- so that's kind of a variation. But two minutes is about the limit. I work with a lot of I hesitate to use the word seniors. Um, uh-huh. golden age people and mm-hmm. sometimes in nursing homes and assisted living and uh, those kinds of short exercises are really helpful for people uh, because the, so the long term memory is still there as well right Yeah, and the first day of my uh, adult class I say we're all going to learn all of our names and I have classes of up to 30 and uh, everyone well, of course not, no we're not oh, not possible and so I said, well, there are two things um, that I want to teach you in this. Let's let's all learn each other's, all of each other's names. One, that there is value in that, learning names. Don't don't give me this, I'm no good at names. We're all going to try to do better because it's a question of attention. So that there's something worthwhile in that. And the other thing I want to teach is that when you attempt to do a name but you, um, you forget or you miss it and have to ask again, you, you're able to practice uh, what it feels like to make a mistake or not be perfect in public and manage that. Because I want us to not only learn names, but also be okay with um, trying to learn a name or making an effort, but, but uh, missing. Uh, so it's often quite surprising by the end of the uh, by the end of the class when we stand at the end and go around a circle of 24 that uh, – a person who couldn't believe they could do that is able to say the names. So, so we uh, we do a lot of things you know, in, during the class to try to reinforce name learning and whatnot. It's not a magic pill or some kind of a strategy. I think there are people who teach how to learn names by making a picture of the sound of the name and pasting it on their forehead and kind of funny mnemonics like that. But I'm just interested in our... Um, Shifting attention from ourselves onto the others. So I took. Del, I think that I was going to say I took. I didn't mean to interrupt. I took Del Carnegie course three times, and a big part of that was learning names, learning how to names. But there's some specific games you might use. I, I have one I call Everybody Go. But do you, can you think of a specific game where you teach people how to learn the names? Um, well, I will sometimes we'll um, we'll say our name a couple of times, and then. Then uh, say a, a phrase that um, that uses alliteration of our name in some mm-hmm. some sort of silly way. I'm I'm Patricia, and I I I, um, I, I practice Pilates, or I I, I please pelicans. Um, so everyone goes around and says their name, and, and then we re- repeat the name. You're Patricia, and you and you uh, practice Pilates, and somehow. Um, the, Adding a silly thing to the name will sometimes help lo- remind you of the letter and uh, whatnot. So, and, or there's adding a uh, going around saying your name with a gesture and uh, right. and things like that. And then I, I put 
put them into groups of five and have everyone practice each other's name um, going round and round. We kind of keep bringing it up. The whole first class, whatever we're doing, we go back and forth to names. And by the end of the two hours, it's remarkable that if you're focused on that, um, what we pay attention to is what grows. And that, yes. that's a great life principle, um, yes. no matter what it is. So, uh, so you, you mentioned the word mistake, and people talk about failure. And I know there's a section in your book about mistakes. Can you expand mm -hmm. on that for me? Just, just that um, it's not really that I want people, please make mistakes. Oh, they're, we're going for mistakes. I think you have to bring that up because whenever you're doing things and you don't know what the outcome is going to be, the outcome is quite often different from any expectation. So I think you have to develop a different relationship to the word mistake or failure if you're going to improvise. I don't even see any of it as a mistake or failure, but, but that's the common terminology people use when the outcome isn't what they expected uh, or, or they're trying to do a game and they do it wrong. There's a sense that I'm, uh, oh, I'm sorry, I, I, I was doing this wrong, that there's, there's a different outcome. So I think it's important when you're teaching improv to bring that up and say, uh, in, in, in the big picture, there aren't any mistakes. Whatever people say and do, you work with. Uh, but if you have the sense, the body sense, that, ah, oh, that was, I screwed up here, um, what you want to do is turn, turn that around um, we all know great examples of all the mistakes in art and science that have turned out to be the greatest discoveries. So using mistakes um, rather than stopping at a particular outcome uh, and calling it a mistake and giving up. So um, I think that there are some improv teachers that don't, don't even like to introduce the word mistake or failure right. uh, yes. or failure bow, that, that they think it's more productive just not to to go there. Um, so I'm a little conflicted about that because I like the positive approach that, that uh, no, there's nothing to talk about. We don't have any mistakes. Um, just begin to redirect your attention. How do you use this content that just happened in some useful or artful way? Yeah, I, I like that idea myself. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> One of the chapters is about purpose and as a therapist, uh, and I work a lot of, with people who are on Medicare and beyond, and I find many people question what their purpose has been. But I see that with all generations. I, I see it with people in their 20s and 30s. What is my purpose? Why am I here? And you write mm -hmm. some lovely thoughts on that subject. I'm glad you brought that up because it, it's not a chapter that most people um, like to talk about or, or bring up. But I think it's, it's essential because um, so often what we focus on is our feelings. How do you feel and, and what do you want to feel? Uh, and feelings are great. They come and go and they're going to change. We all know that. Um, but the thing that we can put some attention on is what's our purpose. And, you know, I, I think um, helping people see that they actually already have purposes Maybe they've not articulated. We probably have a purpose, something like, I'd like, to be, I'd like to be useful. 
that that as a purpose is a pretty terrific thing because being useful then at whatever age means that no matter what's in front of you, you can try to find the way that you can, wherever you are, uh, the, the thing that you do, your behavior is prompted by that desire to be useful. I mean, even if you're lying in bed and you can't move, perhaps being useful means you pull your own blanket up from your knees to your chest. That might be all that's possible. Uh, but that's a useful thing to do, and it helps not to have to call the nurse to do that for you. Um, being useful, um, helping others. I, I've, I've been struggling with that. I'm 75 now, and it's a really important question. What is, what is my purpose at this stage in life? And I've kind of settled on uh, being useful and, and looking around to see what that means. It might mean having a telephone interview with another improviser who's trying to um, – do great work with uh, with her blog. It might be um, taking the um, the trash down this morning because it, this is a trash night. Uh, so I can my husband usually does that, and I, that's a useful thing to do. So um, trying to uh, to find purposes that necessarily aren't uh, huge things like saving the world, but it um, I think we all have values and that purposes come out of what we hold to be um, valuable in life. So I would, I would invite anyone with whom you're trying to help them find their purpose to look for um, small purposes or ordinary purposes or, uh, because those are, those are winners. And uh, they sometimes will then lead to other actions. Being useful might mean, well, I really need to do more writing so that the uh, ideas that have been helpful to people can um, can get out into the world more, or not only more writing, but more publishing. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, so um, we're all here for a purpose, I think, and uh, often those purposes, it, that question is going to provide different answers than what do I feel like doing now? Mm -hmm. um, my feelings are going to push me and pull me all around <laughs> uh, all the time. But um, asking the purpose question can often lead to doing something that will actually make me feel better. Uh, I think we're, we're, we're happier um, and there's more satisfaction in life when we're, when we're on purpose. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I found a real spiritual aspect to improv, especially when I'm teaching. I, mm. I've, I've even taught one-on-one -on -one improv, and that was probably the nicest class I ever gave. I really enjoyed it a lot. A very open woman who had, maybe had some psychological problems, but it was a, just a gift teaching her. And, nice. and there feels like almost a spiritual connection. And the other concept that you talk about is taking care of each other. Mm -hmm. And I think it's so important we take care of each other. And I also believe that's a spiritual principle. Yes. Couldn't, couldn't agree more. I think this taking care of each other is um, looking for opportunities where I can be helpful, I can be kind. We sometimes can't take care of each other in the sense that I'd like to fix your problem. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I, have, I, I have a sister who seems to always be having really serious problems. I would love to help her, but um, I've realized over the years that I, I can give her advice, I can can lend her money. I can sometimes be there with a shoulder or an ear, but I can't. I can't necessarily fix 
or change her. Um, I've got to accept um, that my skin ends at one point and hers begins somewhere else and that we're responsible for ourselves. But the taking care of each other, uh, I think, means always having an eye toward, um, and it is a spiritual concept, that we are, we are here on the planet to, uh, when we can, render um, comfort, aid, material substance, sustenance, and food, and uh, we can do things for each other whenever, whenever it seems to come to us to do. Um, I sometimes ask, um, what is it that only I can do? And, and sometimes the answer to that question has to do is like familial. Well, I'm the, I'm the only aunt that this particular nephew has. So I'm, I can be an aunt to him. Is there something as an aunt that I can do um, moral support? Uh, is there a way that sending him $100 could be um, really helpful? Um, is he in need right now? So I, I look at the relationships I have to friends, students, and family and see um, in terms of taking care of each other, is there something that might be my role to perform as, uh, as, as sister, as, as, as auntie, as uh, wife or teacher? And, um, and sometimes those roles help us discover what's an appropriate kind of um, help. Take, uh, of taking care because we all know that at some point we're if, if we live long enough somebody's going to be taking care of us mm-hmm. um, that, uh, that that's actually um, I think a potentially happy outcome that we live long enough that um, that we would need care and so um, what are the different roles that we can play at different stages in our life to be useful or helpful to others. Well, you have certainly been useful to so many people, thousands of people whose lives you've touched. Improv Wisdom is uh, improv gifts. It's such a wonderful book. In speaking with your students, I know how much you've impacted some of the people you've worked with, many of the people you've worked with. So I'm so grateful that you've been yes-anding me and accepting this interview <laughs> and being so delightful to chat with. And I just, one, one more thing. I know that we spoke earlier about that you really like to teach. You're not that much into the performance, but you like to teach. Right, yes. You're an odd That's- bird, you're an odd bird, Patricia. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> it's really funny because I uh, they they can't they can't drag me on stage. I'll uh, I will um, I'll participate in something if if I find myself cornered. But somehow the uh, the teaching is is a, I guess it's a kind of performance in a way. And what I've discovered over the years is that when I show up, I get my body there into a classroom, and there are a group of people standing around. And okay, it's my turn to give folks things to do, um, it's almost as if I'm not teaching, but I, I something is teaching through me. I show up with a kind of a, a desire to be useful and helpful, and I look at a group of people, and I start to learn their names and shift the attention about how afraid I am. I'm always scared to teach, by the way, um, but, but my sweating armpits um, aside. Um, and then... Something comes through me that will do this exercise and that 
while we're doing it, I'll pay attention and see where that leads us. I think the thing about teaching that I'd, the best advice that I'd like to share is that when you teach improv, please also be improvising. That is, if you come in with your very carefully prepared lesson of what you're going to do and how long it's going to last and how you're going to debrief it and everything, you might miss a chance both to model and experience the real wonder of improv, which is letting letting the truth of the moment come through you using those principles of being helpful and saying yes. Um, so um, I, I love to um, encourage beginning teachers to improvise themselves. And that doesn't mean not preparing anything. Sure, make your notes about the exercises you're probably going to do, but once you're in the classroom, really look and listen to the people around you. Um, Say yes, develop their ideas, accept what's going on, and see where it goes, um, and enjoy the ride. (laughs) It's been wonderful talking to you, really, Margo. Thank you for all your kind words. Oh, I appreciate it so much, and thank you for your time and your energy, and maybe because we just kind of scratched the surface of your wisdom, perhaps sometime we can speak again. I'd love that. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thank you. Bye. Bye.